I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Faith Rogo, is a media literacy leader, innovator, and author who for 20 years has been one of the few people in the United States advocating for and creating media literacy education for young children. She is the founder of Insiders Educational Consulting, the founding president of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, or namely, a founding editorial board member of the Journal for Media Literacy Education, a founding advisor to Project Look Sharp at Ithaca College, and co-author of Namely's Core Principles of Media Literacy Education in the U.S., published in 2007. She is the author of widely circulated teacher's materials on the subject, including her book, Media Literacy for Young Children, Teaching Beyond the Screen Time Debates, published in 2022. So Faith, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much. So first off, I want to congratulate you on choosing and creating a career that profoundly improves the educational foundation for children's capacity to think for themselves and makes the teaching profession more meaningful at the same time. As you allude to in your book, the health of democracies depend on citizens that are not just well-informed, but also capable of evaluating information for its intent, bias, credibility, and veracity. But before we launch into all that, tell us how you got interested in teaching media literacy, especially to young children, and then guiding teachers about what you learned. It's a long and winding road. I certainly didn't start off my career thinking that I was going to be a media literacy specialist. But after I left academe because I wanted to do something more grounded in community work, I went to work for my local public television and radio station and was their education director. And so got very interested in children and media and how kids learn from. At that point, it was television. And it blossomed from there. And when I first got involved with media literacy education, the field was very much focused on older students. Some middle school, but mostly high school and college. And that's where the core of the field was. And the more that I started thinking, really what I think the end goal needs to be is universal media literacy education, meaning for everyone. That means we have to figure out how to do it for everyone. And no one was doing it for early childhood. And because of my experience at the station, was able to shift a little bit and think through. So what are the foundational pieces of knowledge or skills, just like we do with traditional literacy? We don't wait to teach reading until a child can understand a Toni Morrison novel. We figure out over the years how to teach core skills, lay a foundation, and little by little, we build on that each year. And then by the time, hopefully, kids get into high school, they can read that novel. That's what I wanted to do with media literacy. And that's how I came to focus on the early childhood side of the media literacy education movement. And early childhood meaning, in this case, from ages, what, of two to seven or eight, something like that? Yeah, pretty much that. The National Association for Young Children, who published the book, defines it as birth to eight. The book is a little narrower than that. So really, three to six, three to seven is the sweet spot for the book, with a little bit on the edges of two to eight. 
Well, I have to confess that I'm guilty of assuming that media literacy would be useful only starting in maybe upper elementary school. This book was an eye-opener for me that it could start earlier. And, and also the idea that media literacy, with the emphasis on literacy, is akin to print literacy. It's just expanding the types of media that are involved. It is, although I, I think we have to be careful of how we talk about that. It's not a direct correlation, in part because our brains process images differently than they process symbolic representations like letters. Yeah, there are aspects of it that are just like literacy, and so I very much focus on literacy, but it's even more important, I think, for people to think about it the way we think about literacy, not necessarily literally teach literacy. Let let me give a second try here. (laughs) So we're not talking about the very foundations of print literacy, which is about phonics, for instance. But we're talking about the later stages of, of learning not just to sound out words, but to really understand content and style and message and all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's partly that. It is an element of decoding to learning how to analyze and pay attention to what's in media, which is these days, typically a merged version of image and sound and print. So there are decoding aspects to it. But more than that, when we think about it in terms of education, we think about literacy being throughout the curriculum, that everyone does it. If you attend school in the United States, for example, you will get some sort of literacy instruction every single year you're in school. And the assumption is that you will use print and being able to read and decipher and think about print, that you'll use it in every single subject area practically. And that's how we want folks to think about media literacy now. It's literacy, but for the world we actually live in. The only reason that schools focus on print literacy as much as they do is because when schools as a formal system was founded, at least in the United States, print was the dominant form of mass communications. If you had a message that you wanted to get out to lots of people, you put it into print and then spread it out throughout the country. That's not the world we live in anymore. And so you can't be media literate without being print literate. So it's still important to learn how to read and write print. But if you can only read and write print, you're not getting the full benefits of what we think of as being literate. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. And, and I, another eye-opener for me with your book is that media literacy would not just be a separate class, even at the upper grades, that it would be in, embedded, it would be integrated with everything that's, that's being learned because it's relevant to every subject matter. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing because for a long time, in the United States, it was a separate class if it was taught at all. It would either be a production class or it would be the kids who made the school newspaper. And those were a a self-selected small group of students usually. And if it's literacy, then it needs to be infused in everything. And we need to help teachers and librarians figure out how to do that. So just to ask a really basic question for the sake of our listeners who probably already know what media are, but let's just quickly make a definition of what's included in in, under that umbrella term of media. So media are anything that is 
intended to send a message from one person or one entity to others. Usually we talk about mass media, meaning the message is going to more than one person, but you can have media that's only going to one person. But typically it's more than one person. And here's the key. There is something mediating the communication. It's the word media. That there's a device in between the two of you, or there's distance between the two of you. So it wouldn't include unconscious empathy where you don't know why you're feeling someone else's feeling. <laughs> that, that, that probably wouldn't be media. At, at this point in time, with <laughs> what we know in the world, it is not. Would it be at some point in the future? Who knows what technologies will come up. All right. So before we talk about the how of teaching media literacy, let's talk a bit more about the why, uh, about the aims of doing this in the first place. And, and I think there's a hint in your subtitle, Teaching Beyond the Screen Time Debates. The easiest way maybe to understand the why is to go back to that literacy thing. And if you think it's important for kids to learn how to read and write, all those same reasons apply to why we need to extend that to media today. I think beyond that, what we have found, especially in recent years, or at least it has come to consciousness, I think, for people in recent years, is that media are central to democracy. The founding fathers knew it. People like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote about how an informed citizenry was essential to a functioning democracy. And at the time, the way you had an informed citizenry was through newspapers. Newspapers were not unbiased at the time. They were affiliated with political parties. So you knew whose view you were reading. But there was actually a proposal at one point in time in the United States that newspapers should be disseminated for free. That's how important they thought that an informed citizenry was to a functioning, healthy democracy. So fast forward into the world we live in now, and the online world is now our public commons. It's not only where a lot of our personal lives take place these days, but it is where huge amounts of political discourse take place. And so we have to be prepared, each, of, each one of us who are citizens, have to be prepared to participate in that world and understand that world and how it communicates its messages in order to be that informed citizenry that's essential to democracy. And I think that's probably the single most compelling reason right now for the urgency of media literacy education. You didn't use the term disinformation, but I think that's implied in what you're saying, that an informed citizenry has to be not just informed, but also able to analyze and be skeptical of the messages they're constantly getting in, in order to discern what probably is true and what probably is not true. And that's much harder than it sounds. It is. And it's not even just identifying the disinformation. It's also identifying the quality information, the information that you can trust, being able to identify what is it that makes a trustworthy source and also spot when people are using disinformation or misinformation or malinformation techniques. All of those are slightly nuanced and different. It doesn't matter really if you understand, I think, 
the technicalities between all of those. It means somebody's giving you information you can't rely on. And yes, you need to be able to spot that and understand the systems behind it, understand who produces that kind of information and in what ways and what their purposes are. It, we can all see the kind of simplistic, oh, they just they have an idea or they have a candidate and they want you to vote their way. But very often what we're finding is it's much more than that. There are entities now that use posts posing as people. They're not really people. They're either operatives or bots who are just trying to create disruption in society because our enemies think that makes us weaker. So we get lots of amplification of the most extreme voices. And we're led to believe that, oh, that's other Americans who are that extreme. And we certainly have our extremes in America and always have. Uh, But it's amplified in a way that it's never been before. And so part of understanding it is understanding this environment of that allows for this kind of disinformation and what systems are at work, as well as just, oh, I look at that and I can tell, oh, that's a fake picture. So I I have a uh, a politically loaded question, if you don't mind. Uh, Have you found that most educators and parents readily get on board with, with this, or is there resistance to encouraging young, especially young children, to question and analyze the messages they're exposed to. For example, are there religious groups who might insist that young children should only be taught basic skills, especially learning to to read in, in, in the sense of phonetic decoding, to learn to respect adult authority and their behavioral guidelines? Because it seems to me that you, what, what we're talking about is teaching young children, giving them a foundation for questioning things, questioning messages they get, questioning authority, maybe even questioning gender identities. Who knows? It could be wading into topics that would be controversial. Yeah, there are so many answers to that very complex question. (laughs) Let me see if I can tackle a few of them. That last point about inquiry. So inquiry and the inquiry process is absolutely core to being media literate. And so a big part of what we do is teach children to ask questions and to find their own answers as long as they're based on reason and evidence. That means not everybody has to agree. And very often they don't agree. In fact, the more unlike we are from somebody else, the more likely it is that we will come to different interpretations over the media that we're looking at or listening to. And that's really important in the world, I think, especially for adults, because when people say difference these days, they think of racial difference or religious difference or ethnic difference or national differences, and all of those are true and they can influence people's perspectives. But the biggest difference of all in education tends to be age especially when you're working with younger children. So no adult processes the world the way a four-year-old does or the way a six-year-old does. So we are going to have those kinds of disconnects of interpretation and understanding media, and we can predict that we're going to have them. And this becomes important in explaining to parents that this process that we're talking about isn't about indoctrination of any type. That, in fact, because we can predict 
that people will disagree, the goal becomes using good evidence, not forcing agreement. So my goal is never in getting everybody in the room to agree with my interpretation. I'm just wondering about the people who would not necessarily have a problem with that per se, except that they want their own view to be pushed (laughs) or to be inculcated into children. And for that reason, they might really prefer children to memorize material presented by authority figures rather than learning to think for themselves at that age. They say, okay, it's okay to think for yourself once you get into high school. (laughs) But we want the foundation to be unquestioning. Yeah. Early childhood has to add something that with older students, you don't so much have to add, which is we can accept that high school students will say question authority. I think you and I are both of a generation where question authority was a slogan and it was considered a a positive thing for young people to do. With young children, of course, that becomes problematic because there are huge amounts of their worlds where the grown-ups in charge get to say, this is the way it is, and that's the way it is. <laughs> and, and we have to help them gain confidence in trusting those adults around them and say, okay, these are the adults who know or who are in the world and care about me. And yes, I follow their directions. Uh, so how do we get those kids to both trust authority when that's appropriate and then also begin to teach them the skills of questioning authority. And there are actually ways to begin to do that. It doesn't make the conflict go away. There's always going to be that, am I trusting this person or not trusting this person? One thing all good early childhood educators do is we don't ever say anything that would undermine a family's practice or family beliefs. We can. What we can do is point out that's really interesting. Your family does this way. There are other families in the world and they do it a little different. But without making it whatever the child's family does as a negative, it just isn't that interesting. And because kids who are doing media literacy on a regular basis have come to expect that different people will have these different experiences and different perspectives, that's pretty easy for them to accept. Okay. This is what my family does and will keep doing. But there are also other people in the world. And in terms of objecting to kids learning to question the world, then you have to think about, so what are the other outcomes that won't happen if you don't teach them to do that? We were talking about the reasons for starting early. One of the, I think, the counter arguments you make in the book is that postponing media literacy until late childhood would rob students of foundational skills for later life. And it's a really interesting point that some skills need to be started early in order for them to be embedded in who we are. The way we describe that in media literacy education is that a huge part of what we're trying to do is establish habits. And it's much easier to establish habits with a young child than it is with, say, a teenager who already has habits set and now you're trying to change them. Yes, we want to start young. And when we talk about habits of inquiry, one of the things that adults can do 
and especially to parents and not just teachers, but parents can convey their own values around things is by establishing a habit where we explain why we choose the sources we choose. Just explaining lets young children know, oh, there are criteria. And if I want a values message or I want to know how to be a good human being, my family has taught me to look to this, whatever the this is for that family. But that same this, so say it's a the Bible. So my family has taught me to look to the Bible. So for how to be a good human being, I'm going to look for the lessons in the Bible. But what if I want to know how to be a really good soccer player? There's not a lot of advice on how to dribble a soccer ball or put spin on the ball in the Bible. In fact, there's none. So that's not going to be a good source to go to. And so what we do is, well, gosh, where could we find a good source on how to be a better soccer player? And then we help explain to the child why we picked what we picked. Oh, Here's one from a very famous soccer coach who's been really successful. I'll bet they know how to help you be a better soccer player. We'll watch their video. Just that makes a huge difference in terms of establishing that there are criteria for various sources, for various things. It's not if you pretend, no, I just want to give my child the messages I want to give them. In a world if, where you lived in a vacuum, that would work. But your child doesn't live in a vacuum. You don't live in a vacuum. Your child is going to encounter other people. And I remember learning that lesson years ago related to television when Dorothy and Jerome Singer, who were famous researchers around young children in television, did an experiment where they asked children who they knew were from homes that did not have a television or did not allow young children to watch television. And they asked them to identify television characters and almost to a child. And we're talking like four-year-olds here. Almost to a child, they could identify every single character that they were shown. And the researchers were a little surprised. How could you possibly know that? And the explanations would be, my parents don't know this, but when I go stay at grandma's, she lets me. Or when I'm at my friends down the street, they let me. We can let that be the default, that basically your kid will learn about media and how to interpret media from the kids on the playground, or they can learn it from trusted adults. Which do you want? Because there is no option of they're not going to encounter it. Yes, you don't use this word in, in the book, probably because you don't want to alienate any, any readers, but do you think that some parents are, are being, in a sense, overprotective by, let's say, not letting them watch TV or not having a TV in the house or not letting them have any internet time until they're, in, let's say, in elementary school, that the, the um, that it might be overprotective in the sense that, first of all, you, you can't fully protect because they're going to have exposure and also because you're depriving them of the opportunity to learn how to use media by eliminating all media in the first place. I don't know that I would 
considerate overprotection. I, there are reasons for parents to be wary of screens with young children, and they should be mindful of how screens are used in their lives and in their homes. That said, if you want to give kids skills, and especially if you want them to develop healthy habits in terms of a relationship with a screen-based technology, saying, I'm not going to let you use that screen-based technology doesn't give you practice. There are no opportunities to practice. So you'd never learn that self-regulation of, okay, it's time to walk away now, or One of the skills that we talk about that's really important for media literacy is reflection, to think about or be mindful about the impact of the media that you make, but also your own responses to the media you use. And with young children, one of the things that I suggest is to do regular, anytime a child is sedentary, to do regular check-ins where you decide, do I need to take a little break or not? Just it can be a 10 second wiggle break so that a child develops the habit of I'm paying attention to how this is physically affecting me and emotionally affecting me. And every now and then I check in and yeah, do I need a stretch? Do I need to wiggle? Do I need to take a longer break and calm down? Whatever it is, right? So there is that It's hard to develop habits if you don't have any screens at all. And that's where I used to leave it when I was talking about television. What I would say to parents now is I understand the concerns. Some of the concerns are real. Some of them are because you've been taken in by media that benefit from sensationalizing things. And so they tend to far overclaim the negative media effects that there are instead of saying the picture is really nuanced because that doesn't generate a lot of clicks, but a headline that says screens are making your kids into zombies, that generates clicks. So I think parents should be mindful of that. But the most important difference of all is there is almost nobody, unless you really live as a hermit in a cabin in the woods, there's nobody who lives a screen-free life anymore. I would imagine that the the bigger problem, or more common problem, I, I should say, wouldn't be the parents that over-restrict screen time, but actually the opposite, that there are plenty of parents, I think, who don't have the limit-setting skills to make sure that their children have broader experiences than mostly screen time. And they don't know how to, to say, look, maybe we shouldn't be on our phones on, uh, during dinner, not talking to each other. Maybe you shouldn't have the phone in your bed so that you're up till two in the morning if you're a teenager. That there need to be limits early on around screen time. And unfortunately, screens are so entertaining and so engaging that it's really easy for a parent who's, let's say, overwhelmed or over, overworked and maybe doesn't have the limit setting skills to just let it run its course, which is probably too in excess. Yeah. And there are strategies that we can use. I don't want to lay it all on parents either. Uh, There are things that I think media makers, especially media makers and platforms that market to kids that shouldn't be marketing to kids. And there are ways that they can design content that encourage shorter 
online time for young children. So we can pay attention to those kinds of things as well and demand better from the industry. But we can also just share simple strategies for parents, and it can't be watch with your kid all the time. No parent I know can do that. But we can make rules, and this is it's really more media management than media literacy. Media management are the rules we make about the amount of time, where we can use screens, and what we're allowed to watch when we're or do when we're using screens. That those are the media management tools. And parents just need to understand what their kids gain and lose from using screens in various situations. For example, one of the complaints that people who are uncomfortable with so many screens always point to are kids who are using devices in restaurants. So kids who's playing on the tablet or playing on the phone at the table in a restaurant. And assuming that the sound is down and that's not the issue, that it's not disturbing other tables. One of the things that parents don't stop to think about is if your child is looking at a screen and not looking at what's going on around them, what they lose is learning from the modeling of social interaction, how you address the wait staff, how you get somebody's attention if you need it. All of those little kinds of things that are the social nuances of the fabric of our communities. If every time your child is out in public, they're looking down at a screen, they're missing out on getting to see how people interact. And that matters. And the experience of going out to dinner with your family changes. It's no longer uh, having dinner with one's family. It's, It's the adults talking to each other and the child being entertained by the screen. And it's no longer a shared experience. Right. And you know what? There are evenings where, or lunches, where that is going to be what needs to happen. And so I want to give parents permission to say, this isn't a, so never do this. And if you do it, you should feel guilty. And this isn't about guilt tripping parents. They can make calls about, it's sometimes you just need to use that screen as the babysitter, and that's okay. So let's shift now to talking about the how. Uh, Obviously, uh, young children beginning at age two are not going to be analyzing politics or controversial subjects. And and this speaks to what you talked about earlier, that uh, parents need to trust the teachers that they have actually good judgment (laughs) about what areas to go into with young children and what areas not to go into. You uh, write that a teacher might draw attention to everyday items like the graphics on a candy wrapper or the clothes worn by a storybook character. Or the teacher might wonder aloud why there was a paint color called hot pink but not hot brown or hot blue. And as you say, the first step for a young child is simply to, for them to recognize that all media communications are created by people. It's like a major insight for a two or three-year-old. Sure, because media seems magical to a young child, right? We press a button and this stuff just appears, or I scroll a little bit and I can find these amazing videos that I love. And what we want them to know is actually people make those. And the reason that's so important is because that's key. It's foundational to understanding that the people who make them have made choices. The best way for them to learn that, to really get an intuitive sense that's true, is for them to make their own media sometimes and have to make those choices and then understand that they 
leave some things out and they choose to include some things. And some things are bigger than others. And there's a reason that they're bigger than others. Very young children can begin to understand that kind of constructed nature of media. So we do that. But we also try in the early years, especially, although I think this is true for everybody, to drive our own educational choices by what children are encountering, right? What is in their world? What are they interested in? So one of my favorite activities actually is analyzing food packages with kids and with very young children. One of the reasons I like it is because it doesn't have to be this very serious kind of political heavy debate kinds of things. Food packages all talk to us. They're trying to convey something to us and they are media. Especially by me. Yeah. Or even just informational, letting us know what's inside the box. So there's all kinds of information on food packaging. So yes, by me is part of the messaging often. What's inside the box is usually there. And one of the things that we can begin to help young children explore in the food packaging that's in their homes already, or that's in their schools already, or their childcare facilities, is some packages wear disguises. And that's something that young kids already know. Then we can, instead of giving them a lecture about how Cocoa Puffs is really candy, (laughs) lucky charms, whatever your favorite sugar cereal that's marketed to kids is really candy. I can give that lecture, that nutritional lecture to young kids, or I can help them look at a cereal box and ask the question, so if you were looking for a cereal that didn't have a lot of sugar, could you tell whether this one did or not? Or does this box really have fruit in it or not? Or is it wearing a disguise? There are lots of packages that have fruit pictured on the bag or the box that don't actually have any fruit inside. And there are ways we can tell that just by looking at the box. So one of it would be logical. An apple is this big. The package is much smaller. Could an apple really fit in there? Or a banana or whatever fruit the child is familiar with. So that would be one way to tell. Another way would be to teach words like flavored or artificial. And what do those mean when they're on a cereal box or on a food package? As they become more advanced in doing these kinds of things, there are all kinds of hints that we can teach kids to decipher. We talk about them as clues to look for. You can learn how to read this by looking for the clues. And then it becomes an active learning kind of thing and something that they are empowered by instead of, oh, see, they fooled you, which we never want to do with kids because that positions, one, us as experts, and two, them as fools. And what we want is for them to become the experts And we don't ever want them to feel like they're fools because then you give up. Then, oh, I don't want to say anything because I might be identified as a fool and that would be a bad thing. 
So they disengage from the inquiry process instead of engage with it. And what we want them to do is obviously engage in this inquiry process. So we teach them to read these clues. So things like lots of sugared cereal has sparkles on the box. That would be a hint that there's a lot of sugar in this particular cereal. Or a package that has the word lemon flavored. What does that mean? Does that actually mean there's lemon inside? And eventually, as kids learn to read, we can teach them to read the nutrition labels or ask an adult to help them read the nutrition label and give them the knowledge that whatever's listed first is what's in there the most. So they may end up being surprised that the juice that they like, that they think is one flavor, is actually mostly apple juice. That's wearing a disguise. We often refer to early childhood as the, as the wonder years. And I think in the case of media literacy, you're really going to town with that by, for instance, modeling as the teacher. I wonder if, I wonder what, I wonder how, I wonder where. And really modeling that it, the inquiry is more important than, even than the answer, because without the inquiry, you don't get a very sophisticated answer. Yeah, I say in the book that literacy in the digital world requires a bear hug-sized embrace of intellectual curiosity. And we want to infuse that into everything we do. And a lot of media literacy teaching up until now, especially that addressed issues related to what older kids encounter, comes from a sense of anxiety and fear. We're worried about the media they're encountering or media effects. And we develop lessons from that sense of concern and worry and fear instead of this sense of intellectual curiosity and wonder and building these inquiry skills, in part because it's fun, media literacy should be fun, and because that's what ends up giving you the skills to be able to deal with the more intense stuff later. You already know this inquiry stuff, and so you can do a much more sophisticated analysis later on if you get the basics down early. It's such a habit that you can't even imagine looking at media without asking questions. It's just what everybody does all the time. That's what we want. We want that automatic kind of default setting to be this inquiry setting. And I think it also comes from the notion that there's a, a kind of misconception about media literacy that it's about teaching kids to doubt sources. And it's not about teaching doubt at all. It's about teaching interrogation or investigation. So we don't teach kids to doubt sources. We teach them to investigate and then how to find answers to their questions. So we teach them what kinds of questions are helpful to ask when you're trying to figure out stuff from media. And then we teach them how to find reliable, valid answers. And that process gets more sophisticated as we go through the years. One of the questions I, I loved in your book was not the, the question necessarily of how you find things, but qu a question about what children are, are interested in, that it's okay for the teacher or the parent to, to ask, to listen to the children's conversation, pay attention to what they're listening to, what they're viewing, and asking 
things like what engages you, I'm not necessarily in those words, what engages you, what enrages you, what, what do you, how do you feel when you see or hear certain things, and, and actually learning from the children how they're engaging with media to begin with. Yeah, it's switching from the, wow, did you see that, what I noticed here? Switching from that to, so what did you notice? Or what did you notice about? What did you notice about the way they treated each other? What did you notice about how they solved that problem? What I urge people to do is to get past asking about favorites and likes, that those aren't great critical thinking questions, because ultimately, if you ask about my favorite something, what was your favorite part? Why did you like that? So first of all, what the why did you like that? Most young children don't have the vocabulary to even begin to to give great answers to that. So unless you really need to know why they liked what they're watching, don't ask that question. So sometimes, for instance, a librarian may ask, what did you like about that book? Because they want to know what other books to recommend. So there, that's really the question they want to ask. But most of the time we ask it because we don't know what else to ask. And the problem with asking about likes or favorites is that they can't be talked about with logical evidence or you get circular reasoning. Why did you like that? It was funny. What made it funny? It made me laugh. (laughs) That's how a preschooler or a primary grade uh, child is likely to respond. And in terms of favorites, I prefer my favorite, if you ask me about ice cream, is going to be vanilla. And there's nothing you can say that is going to convince me that I really should prefer chocolate. And I can't really give you a logical explanation for why I prefer vanilla. That's, it's just not a really great inquiry-based critical thinking question. And what we want to do is give questions instead that are critical thinking questions. What makes you say that? What did you notice about how they solved the problem? Then I can ask, yeah, Did you think that was a good way to solve the problem? What would you have done? We can have these conversations. So we think of these questions as beginnings of conversations rather than as quizzes. It's not a Q&A of did you get the right answer. The old thing about open-ended versus closed-ended questions is related. Another thing that you talk about is that rather than attempting the impossible task of teaching young children to differentiate between real and pretend, which for very young children is really, really hard to do, that a better strategy would would be to teach them to differentiate between their world and the media world. And that has implications for how and when it's appropriate to imitate fictional characters. Like you you don't want your child to be eating like Cookie Monster at the table, for instance. So the the Cookie Monster story is a, a good illustration of this. So Depending on the child's developmental stage, real and pretend is a developmental issue. If they're not yet ready to understand the difference the way that adults understand it, there's nothing you can say that are going to make them ready all of a sudden. They will grow into it. But in the meantime, you want to make sure that, for instance, they're not copying undesirable or even dangerous behavior from media that they see. And of course, children are learning from everything around them all the time. They are sponges for information, and that includes the media that they're using. So 
what I recommend is, so if a child comes and you know that they can talk in full sentences and instead they say, me want cookie, you can do one of two things. You can either assume that they're doing pretend play and enter into the pretend play with them and hand them a pretend cookie, which is probably not what they're actually after. And then say, oh, that's in your media world. In the real world, when we want a cookie, we say, may I have a cookie, please? And that's it. So instead of saying Cookie Monster isn't real and then trying to describe why Cookie Monster isn't real, the child just saw it on their screen. What do you mean Cookie Monster isn't real? (laughs) They're more real than Aunt Zelda who sends a card on their birthday who they've never met or they haven't seen in two years, which for a young child is forever. They have an idea of what's real. It's just not the same concept that grownups have of what real means. Real means it's in front of you. Real means it speaks to you. It echoes with your own experience. We don't want to dissuade them from that perception. So we need to be careful. And also, we don't want to say that real is always the superior alternative to for them, what for them is pretend or fantasy. We can say, oh, that's not real, that's fantasy. But we need to be very careful. Children's imagination is vital to their healthy development and learning. Imaginary play is critical to them learning. So we don't want to devalue fantasy or imaginary worlds. And that's why I say, no, instead of going there where you're not likely to have success and you can do some damage, instead, just differentiate yes, you're right. You just, I know you just saw that on TV. So I can say, oh, they do that on TV or they do that in the movie or on that video, right? But we don't do that here. And young children know that. They're already, by the time they're three, most kids have been in environments where they know they can behave in certain ways in one environment that they can't do in other environments. If they've gone to, say, a church service, they know that they're not allowed to make noise in the church service in the same way that they're allowed to in their playroom, or that they're allowed to do certain things at home that they're not allowed to do at school, or that they're allowed to do certain things at grandma's that they're not allowed to do at home. So they know that. They know that there are certain things that they might be able to do when they're playing that they're not allowed to do when they're in the car. They know those limits. All we need to do is set those boundaries around media. Yeah, and and I'm glad you mentioned about sometimes the adult joining the play, like giving the pretend cookie. I remember when my daughter was in a kinder music program at two years old, there was another child who had brought a toy and the toy was very much distracting her and the group. So the teacher, instead of saying, you're not allowed to have that in here, said, oh, actually, I think your toy would like to watch what happens here from over here on top of the cabinet. So joining with the child and recognizing the importance of that toy to the child. And and fortunately, it worked. Yeah, that's exactly. And a lot of this, again, most parents, most teachers didn't have the benefit of media literacy education when they were young. And so they, and this stuff isn't always intuitive. So we have to be able to share strategies with everybody. 
Right, in, including with parents. And, and you mentioned some really uh, fabulous ideas about how to engage families uh, about media. And one way is to actually use media to communicate with parents, for instance, by texting to them about what was learned that day, what the topics were, and you might ask your child about X. And sort of you're promoting the kind of conversation that's helpful for understanding media at home. Right. We often uh, have examples of the, so what did you do in school today? Oh, nothing <laughs> is the <laughs> answer. So instead of doing that, if a teacher can text home or whatever communication the family prefers to say, today we learned what the word flavored meant. You might ask your child to explain to you what something being flavored means, and then maybe look with them around your kitchen to see what products are in your house that have that word flavored on the label. Very simple to do. And another example you, was that you could provide parents with tools for how to choose media for their children. So what would be an example of that? One of the things that early childhood professionals often know a lot about that sometimes parents don't know so much about is child development and understanding child development. And there are stages of child development. For example, one stage of child development that all kids go through is that they copy things to learn. They're testing out the world. Very often they copy us. And we sometimes see our own hand movements or facial expressions or whatever on our young child. And it, it's funny to see them doing it. When they are at that stage of they will try to copy almost anything, then we want to tell parents, all right, that anything includes what they're seeing on media. So maybe that's not the best time to show them a movie that has lots of stuff in it, even that you know is imaginary, but stuff that they conceivably could copy and that might hurt them hurt somebody else. It's not putting a judgment on that movie or the family or the show. It's just saying, you know what? Your child is at this developmental stage right now. And so pay attention to what they're seeing in media because before you know it, they could be copying it and you don't want to expose them to something you'd prefer they not be doing. You also mentioned in the book that it's really important for the teacher not to impose their own values about what's good media and what isn't good media for families. Let's say you have a child whose parents are very doctrinaire or um, fundamentalist in some way. How would you figure out how to help such a family to help their child when their values might be not just a little different, but a lot different, very illiberal in a sense? Because I'm teaching skills, and so I don't need to make a judgment. They're going to make their own decisions about what media are and aren't available to their child in their home. But what kind of things would you suggest to such a family that you might not suggest to a, a more liberal-minded family? In terms of media and media choices? Yeah, in terms of media. Yeah, media choices, yeah. Oh, I, the advice wouldn't be any different. It, it would it's still look for media that is of interest to your child, that supports your values. For parents, what I would say is media can reinforce what you're trying to do as a parent, or it can undermine what you're trying to do as a parent. 
if you don't want to make your job harder, then choose media that reinforces the value messages that you want to send. And then we can do a little bit of training on how you determine the value messages that media are trying to send. Because very often, adults are reading children's media with an adult eye, and what they're reading isn't at all what children are understanding from it. Now, are there any suggestions you can give to parents generally about how to enjoy uh, sharing media with their children? As you mentioned, most parents don't have a lot of time to watch things with their children, but it's good to do at least a little bit of time just to get the sense that you know what your children are taking in, but also in order to have conversations about it at some point. Sure. If you're into gaming at all, and for young children, that might be even just using simple apps that are games, play together sometimes as best you can. So if you're in line waiting, if you're, and normally you would just hand the screen to the kid, instead of doing that, play with them if you can. That would be one, engaging them. Another thing would just be if you can't watch with them all the time, know enough about what they're watching to ask questions. Know the main characters and ask specifically. So what happened with that character? One of the scenarios is, all right, I have to put my kid in front of the screen because I need to go make dinner. And part of what I would suggest was, wow, kids can learn a lot from helping you make dinner. Figure that one out. But We can't do that all the time. Sometimes that parent needs to go do something and needs the child not to be the focus of their attention. But know what they're watching and then make it such a habit, such a routine that the child knows that when everybody comes for dinner, you're going to ask them about what they watched and have a conversation based on that. So clearly in your book, you're trying to be as open-minded as possible about parents' choices of media for their children and to also not fall into the trap of, of thinking that uh, media is harming children, for instance. I mean, it's clearly em- the emphasis is on understanding media and guiding children to use media well and to learn from it and to learn about it. There is a little bit in the book about things that can harm media that, that can harm, not necessarily in as dramatic a way as you might see in the headlines, But I think what you talk about is that the excessive time on media can crowd out other wholesome activities if it's excessive. And also if the activity is what you might consider a mindless. So I think the example you give in the book is a child who's doing something like Candy Crush for hour after hour. They already understand the game. It's just a question of getting a higher score. And it's clearly a marketer's dream to get the kid to (laughs) to just continue like that. that. That not all media is equally valuable, obviously. The challenge with it is whether it's valuable or not is very individualized. A child with some sort of attention disorder who uses media to calm themselves, they may be doing exactly what they need to be doing in getting to that kind of what we would may may label like that mindless state of where you're just in the zen of kind of playing Candy Crush. Another child with the same diagnosis, but who is different, is totally set off by stuff on screen and stuff that moves on screen and moves quickly on screen. They shouldn't be using it at all. We have to present general guidelines for how you make those calls. And one of the guidelines is 
just pay attention to what your child's reaction is to various kind of media. And then again, for me, it's always so you can make the choice then. If their reaction is that they're a nice, helpful, cooperative human being at the end of watching whatever it is they're watching or playing whatever they're playing, then great. That's probably a good media choice. So you might say that whether you're a parent or a teacher, it, it takes media literacy to teach media literacy. I think so. Yeah. Let's close with a, a quote of yours at the end of your book. You, you write, uh, compared to other books on media and children, this book has asked you to do something unusual. It has asked you to see the challenge as illiteracy rather than media. So you, you really put the emphasis on the, in the right place, I think, that literacy as in, in the broadest sense. And I think we get distracted by saying our job is to show how bad media are. Then we're measuring our success on whether we change media or not. And at least in education, we want to measure success by what children are learning and what they're able to do, what skills they're gaining. And so I want to put the focus on the child and have it be child-centered education and paying attention to what kids are doing as opposed to what media are doing. And by defining it as illiteracy, then we can begin to say there are actually a set of competencies and everybody can learn them. It is interesting to me that nobody looks at print literacy as being somehow politically one-sided or the other. It doesn't get into that frame. We don't worry about how different families do it. Only the very, very most extreme of families don't think that they should teach their kids to read and write. That's what I want for media literacy. I think that's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much, Faith Rogo, a media literacy leader, innovator, and author of all kinds of teacher materials teaching media literacy, including her book, Media Literacy for Young Children, Teaching Beyond the Screen Time Debates. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. It's really a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.